Well, church, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter. We're going to begin a study of this gospel, and I can't say this with certainty, but I have a feeling that of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark probably gets the least amount of attention. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll certainly address that, why that might be. But it is the Word of God, is divinely inspired and given to us for all the reasons why any other text is given to us. But this morning, we're going to begin in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptizing by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And the voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, Be with us this morning as we discuss, focus on, meditate on the beginning of the gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. It's his name we pray. Amen. I have some good news. Everyone perked up. How do you like the sound of that? I have some good news. No one ever hears I have some good news and feels a feeling of dread. And usually, we hear that, and we're, we're familiar with the trope, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. But it is possible, church, to only have good news. And what a joy it is when we receive good news. Even hearing, I have some good news, and watching your heads pop up, it elicits all the hopeful kinds of excitement and anticipation that we can have. What was bad might be better What I didn't know about is now going to be good. Now, Mark's gospel begins with words of hopeful excitement and anticipation. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the first verse of Mark's gospel effectively functions both as the title of the book and the thesis statement. Now, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark is going to tell his audience to tell us about the good news of Jesus. The idea of beginning for Mark works in two ways. 
First, he's going to trace in broad strokes, starting here and through the end of the book, the years of Jesus' ministry from his baptism to his resurrection. And second, by saying, in the beginning, he's reminding Christians that this, this point, what he's about to articulate, what we're about to read, what that original audience was about to hear, is the beginning of a new reality, a reality of the kingdom, of salvation, in which believers in the first century lived in, and what we live in now, when this reality started. And right off the bat, in the text that we read this morning, these first 15 verses, Mark introduces three essential aspects of what he's writing. First, that this is the gospel. This is good news. Second, that John, this man, this figure, was a special herald of the kingdom. And third, that Jesus is that good news. What is the gospel? That John came as a herald or a messenger. And third, that Jesus himself is this good news. But before we work through these important parts of this morning's text, we would do well to note a few background items and issues regarding the gospel of Mark, if this is where we're going to be for a number of months. Now, as you know, Mark is one of the gospels in the New Testament. There's four. And along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's called a synoptic. And this has to do with the fact that all three of these Gospels share a similar literary structure presenting a narrative of Jesus' life. And a Gospel, I think it's worth noting, isn't necessarily a biography. It's a biography with a purpose. It's a biography that's also communicating doctrinal truths to the audience. So, as I said, the synoptics share a good deal of content with one another. And this is why, as I mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier at the beginning of the message, why often Mark doesn't get the same amount of attention that Matthew and Luke does. Because the vast majority of the content in Mark can be read also in Matthew or also in Luke. And it is fascinating to look at the similarities and the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this area of study has led to much ink being spilled regarding which one came first and if one relied upon another to be produced. But all that sort of stuff is kind of beyond the scope of this morning. What's essential to know is that all three of these Gospels, along with John, kind of the the, the different of the group, are inspired by the Holy Spirit and were received by the church as authentic, legitimate, apostolic works of Scripture. And so something else that we could talk about for a long time, which is more pertinent to what we're going to be talking about, is authorship. There's near consensus among early church fathers that this gospel indeed was written by John Mark, and that his primary source, aside from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, was the apostle Peter. John Mark the New Testament teaches, was the missionary companion of Paul and Barnabas. We read about Mark elsewhere, especially in Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament and the epistles. There's no explicit text in the Gospel of Mark saying that Mark was the one recording and that the experiences that he was recording were that of the apostle Peter. But once more, from the context, as we're going to continue to see as we study the Gospel of Mark, we see these truths being very, very clear but we also rely on testimonies that go almost all the way back to the beginning, almost back to the end of the first century, but the early second century that attest that this is indeed a gospel that came from Mark and that his companion 
and that his experience that he was recording were the apostle Peter. The final thing, so we talked about kind of the synoptic issue. We talked about authorship. And the final thing worth mentioning, and there's so much background that's fascinating, but we'll talk about that later. It's important to note that the gospel of Mark was received as canonical, that this was seen as a true gospel, an apostolic gospel, a biblical gospel, as late, or excuse me, as early as the late first century. We have passages of Mark from the late first century that were used in liturgies, so in church services, in prayers, and in church fathers' writings from the end of the first and the beginning of the second century, where we have the attestation that they treated and they used and they, they lifted up the gospel of Mark as scriptural in the same way as the other books of the New Testament. So we can say a lot about Mark, we could say a lot about Peter, we could say a lot about the other synoptics, we could say a lot about the role of Mark's gospel in the early church, and these pertinent details will inevitably come up as we walk through the gospel of Mark together. But this morning, let's return to our text at hand and how Mark starts this gospel off. After opening with his title or thesis statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark immediately quotes from the Old Testament. Read verses 2 and 3 with me. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So, second asterisk from the, for the morning. We begin, it was worth touching on the, author, the area of authorship there's an interpretive asterisk that is worth knowing because this is the kind of thing that inevitably comes up as you talk to people about the Word of God. So before we get to the powerful implications of this passage, these Old Testament quotations that are used by Mark, we need to see what's going on here because Mark attributes this quotation to Isaiah. However, a careful analysis of the book of Isaiah, I encourage you to read it cover to cover later this morning, but it will yield no mention of the beginning of this passage. There's no, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you in Isaiah. The end of verse 2, who will prepare your way, and all the way through verse 3, come from Isaiah for, uh, chapter 40. But the beginning of verse 2 is nowhere to be found. Why is that? You can find it, it's just in Malachi. Which raises the question, was Mark confused? And this might sound kind of on the, the, the verge of blasphemy, but this is the question people raise. Was the Holy Spirit confused? That he didn't know where this text came from? Absolutely not. Without going too deep down this rabbit hole, it ought to suffice to say that it was a common practice in that day among rabbis and other authors to string together passages and then attribute that to the most prominent author, the most prominent prophet. In light of this, Mark's citation here and other examples of this and other texts in the New Testament have not bothered students of Scripture one bit. In fact, writing in the fourth century, Jerome essentially said, maybe I'm ignorant, but it looks like he's paraphrasing. That's my paraphrase of Jerome talking about that. That's not how they wrote in the fourth century. But no, the, the matter of how Mark communicates this thing, and it, it matters, it's worth talking about, what matters most is what he's saying. And what he's saying is that following the presentation that this is the beginning of the gospel, that he then goes to the fact that the Old Testament is talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. 
The Old Testament is pointing to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus. So you could say that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the Old Testament. This is where it begins. Salvation wasn't something that was kind of finally figured out on the cross. Salvation wasn't thrown together in a manger in Bethlehem. The good news of the gospel, the kingdom of God and of salvation, began in the Old Testament. This is what Mark wanted his readers to hear and understand. This is what he wants us to understand. And church, this is why studying the law and the prophets and the writings matters. After his resurrection, Jesus himself revealed how the Old Testament was about him. He said, Luke says of him that then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, those who are around Jesus, the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And so getting into this, this pitfall that so much of the church has gotten into of turning away from the poetic passages, the complicated history, the obscure prophecies, and even those long genealogies, what doing that does is it robs people of seeing Christ fully. Turning away from the Old Testament robs us of seeing Christ fully. How would you feel if you found one more gospel? That's something that actually the world goes nuts for. Every time one of these Gnostic gospels, one of these late writings that talks about the life of Jesus Jesus or the teaching of Jesus pops up and is inevitably determined to be a forgery or a dupe or a late kind of writing, Everyone goes nuts because they think Jesus is this fascinating figure. We wish we knew more about him. But church, Genesis to Malachi is about Jesus. The red letters weren't put there by the Holy Spirit. That that, that, that division between books and chapters wasn't put there by the Holy Spirit. The entirety of God's word is about Jesus. And here we have two examples, Malachi and Isaiah, that point to Christ and point to the one who would say, this is the Christ, John the Baptist. And who is this one? It's John. He was kind of the wild-eyed, turn-or-burn preacher out in the woods. But he was the one preparing the way for Jesus. As someone who was living a life that was a few standard deviations away from what was considered normal or acceptable in his culture, John was following a loud, or a loud, a long, proud line of Old Testament prophets. He spoke and lived in a way that got people's attention. And this mattered because his mission, all the prophets' missions as we go back in the Old Testament, was to prepare people's hearts and get their attention for the Lord and his salvation. John was doing what everyone else had done, all the other prophets had done. And so let's look at his ministry for a moment. Read verses 4 through 8. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we've already touched on some of the more aesthetically dramatic aspects of this passage. The wilderness setting, the eccentric attire, the bizarre diet, 
Notice there's nowhere in this text or any other gospel that says that we need to eat or dress like John the Baptist. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not prescribed. But John was preaching a message of repentance. Notice that's what it's saying, a message of repentance. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn away from something wrong and towards towards something that is right. He was calling the people to turn their hearts away from their coldness and turn their hearts back towards God. And so John, in doing this, had the make, his lifestyle, his attire, and the manner, his message of repentance, of a prophet. And the people were responding to John's call. All the reason of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So this method of ministry is what gave John the moniker by which he is most commonly known, John the Baptist. Or for Presbyterians who are reluctant to insinuate doctrinal allegiance, John the Baptizer. But neither of them are in the text. You can call him John the Baptist. You can just call him John if you want. He doesn't care. But John's baptism, note here, is not the kind of baptism that we practice. John's baptism was one of preparation and one of repentance. One of preparation, one of repentance. Now, repentance is only a part of Christian baptism. Repentance is one facet of this sacrament that we practice, that we've been blessed to experience seven times this summer in this church. It's one aspect that's intended to depict and seal a new identity of Christ in us and his work. So John's baptism, notice this church, a distinction is being drawn. John's baptism was about being washed, being cleansed, and being made ready. Our baptism, the baptism that we practice, is about being washed, being cleansed, but about receiving and being brought into the thing that John was preparing for. Does this make sense? This is, this is an important distinction to make. It also acknowledges that there was other kinds of baptisms that were happening. But this one, through confession, through baptism, John's disciples from all across Judea were being prepared to encounter the Messiah. So like the prophets before him, this yielding ministry of him doing something that was just getting ready for somebody else, this yielding life, putting himself on the line for what God had called him to do for the one who is being prepared for, makes for a humble and mighty servant of God. See his words in verses 7 and 8. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows that he has prominence. John knows he has prominence, but it is a diminutive prominence in comparison to the coming Messiah. So if you go hiking in the White Mountains, and I would encourage you to do so now before everybody from out of state, those Massachusetts types, you know how they are, they come up here to see your leaves. When you go up there, you're often treated, as you're hiking, to an overlook, or, or where you begin to start seeing how high up you are, and you begin to see the, 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 the leaves and the foliage and the valleys and the rivers, and you're treated to this on your way up to the top of the mountain. There's like a break in the tree line, or maybe you're at a false summit where it kind of rounds up around a bend. You stop, you behold the scenery, and everything around you is breathtaking. But as you turn around to admire everything that you're seeing from the stop, you realize 
that there's still another higher peak. And on that higher peak, the scenery, the view, they blow that intermediate overlook out of the water. There's a difference. They're both good. That overlook on the way up to the top of the mountain was nice, but it pales in comparison to what you see at the top of that mountain. John mattered. We must acknowledge that. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus acknowledges this, saying that he is the best man that has ever been born from woman. But Jesus knew that he, Jesus knew that, Jesus acknowledged that John, and John himself knew that as the mouthpiece of the Lord, he couldn't even hold a candle to Jesus' sandals. John knew that what mattered most was Jesus. John knew that what mattered most was humility. We ought to emulate John more and his spirit more, more than the proud spirit of our age. Even when we are being used in mighty ways to acknowledge that we must decrease and Christ must increase. Mark, and the inspiration of the Spirit, in dramatic fashion, notes this transition. As Mark's narrative shifts from the prophet to his Messiah, John himself says these words, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We see this stark contrast. John had an earthly ministry that pointed to the heavenly. John had a tangible ministry that pointed out the spiritual. John's baptism, once more, was a picture. Just like our baptisms, in, in many ways, are pictures. Our water, baptism, excuse me, our water baptism is a picture of the true washing and the true sealing and the true identification of the Spirit that occurs sometime prior to our baptism. Something that occurs at our regeneration at the moment of our salvation when we pass from death to life. In the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was only sent by the Lord himself. So notice what we see here. We receive, and we acknowledge, that we receive the Holy Spirit and is poured out to us by Christ. This is something that John even says here. John was baptized with water. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that we receive the Holy Spirit by God. And so what is being spoken of here in Mark? John is saying, I baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, and what we acknowledge today, is that the Holy Spirit is only given, is only poured out, is only sent by God himself. And so by John saying, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, what is he saying? Right off the bat, right in the very first words of the Gospel of Mark, we are seeing Jesus as being identified with God. Jesus is taking a prerogative that only belongs to God. God sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to be giving the Holy Spirit. These are the things that wash over us so often, to use a baptism language, because we're just so used to seeing the Gospels. But to see this being presented in these stark words, so often we hear people say, well, why doesn't, the God, why doesn't it just say Jesus is God? To hear a statement like, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was to those hearers today, and it should be, or that day, and should be to us today, that same red flashing light, Jesus is God. He is doing the, only the things that God can do. Like creation, like the forgiveness of sins, pouring out the Holy Spirit is something that belongs to God and God only. And John is saying, 
this man, Jesus, is going to do that. And so consequently, the great things that John was offering pale in comparison with Jesus' riches. And as we know, all things of this earth pale in comparison to Jesus' abundant riches. So Mark introduces us to Jesus. He first introduces us to John and how John is a continuation of the ministry of the Old Testament. Now he introduces us to Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now it happened that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Why does Jesus get baptized? Why does Jesus get baptized? This is a great question. But I think this goes back to the fact that John's baptism is different than our baptism. Jesus gets baptized because Jesus is about this baptism of preparation. Jesus is being prepared. On one hand, he's being prepared for his ministry, just like John was baptizing people, preparing for the Messiah. Jesus was preparing to be the Messiah. The baptism didn't confer on him a sonship he didn't have. He didn't confer on him a perfection he didn't have. John's baptism of Jesus didn't give him anything that he didn't have, but Jesus was not only showing that he was preparing for his ministry, he, like the others submitting to John's baptism, is being, is being prepared to encounter something. But for him, it's encountering the world in his messianic work. But also along with this, and scripture bears this out later, he is identifying himself with all of those people. He's identifying himself with his people. They are being prepared. I am being prepared. We are doing this together. So often we see in the New Testament the idea of us being in Christ, being identified with Christ, being part of Christ, being fellow heirs with Christ, being brothers of Christ. Jesus is showing in dramatic fashion, not because he has to repent or because he is repenting, about how he's going through the same thing that his people are going through. He is submitting himself to this, a baptism of preparation just like his people. He does all things that his people does. This makes him a great high priest. This makes him a perfect mediator. Then we have the remarkable Trinitarian image in verses 10 and 11. We see this in the other Gospels as well. The sun comes up from the water. Notice this. He doesn't just wipe a little bit off his head. Comes up from the water. An image of the Spirit alights on him, and the thundering voice of the Father pronounces him son and pronounces him delightful. God in three persons. As the hymn says, blessed Trinity. Literally, though, you see that heavens were torn apart. In the text, it says that different translations say different things, but this one says that um, the, the heavens opening but this language is the heavens tearing. There's, a, there's, there's almost like a, a, something happening physically and spiritually such that the fabric of reality itself was being altered by the creator because what was happening at this moment was the dawn of a new era. It was an incursion in a great way for this messianic moment. Creation itself was being altered in a way that's undescribable except for the fact that the heavens were being torn open by its creator. And we see in this moment, Father, Son, and Spirit pushing through in audible, tangible, visible ways through the veil that separates man from God. 
the triune God is all three inseparably engaging in this messianic work. Jesus' church was not alone. Jesus was working. The Son was working with the Father. The Spirit was descending upon him. They were all together. They are as one God engaging in the salvation of a particular people that will, with Christ, eventually take on those titles of sons and of well-pleasing. That title, those, those names given to Christ at his baptism are the same ones that his children, that his brothers, that those who are saved receive upon our salvation. Well, what we'll become quite familiar with in these next weeks, this breakneck pace at which Mark jaunts through the narrative. We are no sooner introduced to Jesus than Jesus is in the water, then Jesus is out of the water, and then we're on to the next thing. Jesus is no sooner dried off from being in the Jordan that we see that immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Church, much could be said about Jesus' time in the wilderness, but the one thing I want to kind of focus on this morning is, is this poignant contrast between what we just recently studied and what we're studying now, there's a poignant contrast between Jesus' ordeal and Adam's probation. Adam had a garden. Jesus had a wilderness. The beasts that were brought to Adam in a tame and orderly manner are described as surrounding Jesus and being wild in this scene. Most notably, Adam succumbed to the devil's temptation, whereas Jesus triumphed over Satan. We have this contrast of Adam not being able to endure temptation in a perfect setting and Jesus being victorious in a hard setting. What a wonderful testimony and what a wonderful encouragement to us that the power that we have is the kind of power that can get through the wilderness and the wild beasts and the difficulty of temptation. We do not have a faith that only endures at the mountaintops. We do not have a faith that only endures in the good times. We do not have a power from a God or from a man that only can make things work when, things are, are go, when all pistons are firing and when all the ducks are in the row. We have a Christ who succeeded in the worst circumstances, and he's with us, and he empowers us to succeed in all circumstances. It says later in 1 Corinthians that for in Adam all die, so as in Christ all will be made alive. This is the contrast. This is the, the beginning of the gospel is truly saying, it, it's baked into it, that all are dead in Adam, but here's the solution. Adam failed, and in him all of us fell. Jesus succeeded, and in him all those who are in him will rise. Now for Mark... Again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in some ways an undoing and a remaking of the broken beginning of mankind. We pointed out that his connection to the Old Testament, we're pointed out his victory over Satan in the, in the wilderness, and we see that this frayed and unraveled creation that we just so recently talked about back in Genesis chapter 3 and then onward are now being stitched and woven back together into a beautiful tapestry by the creator taking on flesh himself. Christ 
and the Spirit and the Father are working things back together. But Christ is the agent of this happening. As it says in Colossians, for in him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. His incarnation, which in, in Mark we don't get the birth narrative. We don't hear about him as a baby, but we hear about him entering the scene, entering his creation, and in doing so, beginning the process of making things right, reclaiming what is rightfully his from the demonic powers, from sin and evil and death. Again, Mark's gospel, the beginning of of what he writes, doesn't start in a manger. It starts in the Old Testament's promise of one who will literally, it says back in the psalm, or in Isaiah, make ready the path of Yahweh. So I mentioned before how we get this idea that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit as an overt declaration of his divinity. We don't have to go that far. We see that as Mark utilizes Isaiah 40 in verse 30. It says, ones in the wilderness that will make way the path of, in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Of course, it's in Mark, it's in Greek, so it's talking about Adonai, this title of Lord. But the citation from Isaiah, going back to the Old Testament, is unequivocally clear that it's talking about God, the God, the one God. Deuteronomy 6, behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And it's saying that the one coming will make ready the path of Yahweh. I think John is clearly the one who is the messenger. We see that in the text. The voice crying in the wilderness, the one making ready the path for Yahweh, God himself. And so we meet John, and then who do we meet? We meet Jesus. And then we ought to put two and two together. Jesus is Yahweh. He is I am. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is, and he takes this title on himself later in Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the only one to whom praise is due. He has come to save his people. He is the one of which countless Old Testament promises foretold. All of this, church, is wrapped up in these simple texts, these simple passages, this fast, rapid-fire, staccato pace that you work through in Mark. We get the prophecy, we get John, we get the baptism, we get the wilderness, we get his preaching, boom, 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 boom. But what they do is they give us a clear way where we can't walk away from these 15 verses that we're talking about this morning and think anything other than Jesus is God. And this is the message of God in flesh in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John had a good ministry, but in his providence, God sees the torch pass from John to Jesus. The prophet, the one who is a ministry of preparation, as all the prophets had done, yields to the God to whom and forth they speak. And what this prophets spoke in part, God speaks in fullness. What the prophets spoke in part, God speaks in fullness. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, which had been anticipated, and the concept we're going to talk about inevitably over and over and over again in the coming weeks, God himself brings with him into creation. The message, John's message, the prophet's message of a promised Messiah gives way to the promised Messiah in the midst of his people. Again, 
Mark's account is succinct. Jesus, in his coming on the scene, is presented in a tight and tidy little package. There's the baptism, the temptation. Why? It appears to me, it appears to most commentators, it appears as we read the text, for what it's worth, for, for the literature that it is, it's so that we can get to the heart of the matter, so that we can get to the gospel. What was John's purpose? Why did Jesus come? The gospel. This is the point. He starts off telling us the beginning of the gospel, and now he gets to the gospel. Church, we can't take for granted the fact that we live on this side of history. This is an era, the one we live in, the one the church era has been in for the last 2,000 years, is one where we can look back on these events, see them as historical realities, see how all of the puzzle pieces came together. We can look back at the completed canon of Scripture, the comprehensive nature of the revelation of God in the Bible. We are graciously baptized by the Son in His Holy Spirit because of the divine edict of our Heavenly Father, which means that we have this gospel and we have good news and we have the joy that it is to share the good news. There's much we can take from this first passage of the gospel of Mark, but let's meditate a moment on two simple things. First, we are not prophets in the vein of John the Baptist. We're not. Again, the way we're clothed today points that out and I'm thankful for it. But We can be prophetic. That means we can cry out in the wilderness, the wilderness of Chester, New Hampshire, the wilderness of Rockingham County of New Hampshire, the wilderness that we live in today. And I don't think any of us would complain if I made the analogy between the wilderness that John was in and the cultural wilderness that we find ourselves in at this moment. In Scripture, the wilderness is rarely a pleasant place. In fact, the wilderness is pictured as an unclean place, a dangerous place, and a spiritually desolate place. It's the place where bandits and bloodthirsty beasts and even demons dwelled. But it's also a place where God delivers. He delivered Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness. He provided for Elijah when Elijah was in the wilderness. And he blessed John's ministry in the wilderness, as John preached a message of good news. And again, we have good news, and it ought to be a joy to share good news. Those desolate and dangerous places that we encounter, church, they have been conquered by Jesus. He has gone before us once more. We see this even at the beginning, at the outset of the gospel, where the cross is not even on the horizon for Christ and his apostles, but Jesus has victory over these desolate and difficult places. He's gone before us. He has, he has triumphed over trial. He has triumphed over temptation. He has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over death. And with his authority on heaven and on earth, which has been given to us, we can go forward and we can prophetically speak of the kingdom. As I said already, we'll inevitably discuss the nature of the kingdom more as we continue through this book. But see what Jesus said 2,000 years ago at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he says in verse 15, the kingdom is God is at hand. It is not that the kingdom of God is far away. It's not the kingdom of God is is something that will come after signs and, and wars, rumors of wars. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. 
what meant that 2,000 years ago, as Christ, as the creator, as the one who brought this thing, it was with him breaking through into this realm. And for the last two millennia, this has continued through his ministry, through his body, the church. This means that, empowered by his spirit, according to his word, that we as individuals and as a church can proclaim this truth of the come and coming king. And it matters. It counts. It does something. It has power. It's not an empty exercise. Proclaiming the kingdom is not the kind of thing that only has an impact if you are eloquent. It's not the kind of thing that only has an impact if you have altar call numbers to report to the denomination. It has power to simply proclaim the truth of the kingdom, of the gospel. But of course, there's a cost. We, something we went by very quickly in, in um, verse 14 is that John had been delivered up into custody. It'd be, some translations say he's been handed over. This is showing that John, in his work of crying out in the wilderness, of the one standing up, and we know the nature later of, of what he was doing. He was speaking to a magistrate. He was speaking to a, speaking to a civil authority who was not in the church, yet God, that John thought it prudent and John thought it necessary, and the Holy Spirit compelled him to go and speak the moral truth of marital fidelity to a public servant. I guess he didn't have that whole separation of church and state writer that we've got somewhere in the back of the Bible. But John did that because that's what he's called to do. That's what we're called to do is present the true morality and the truth of God regardless of circumstances. And so consequently, he was handed over. There's hardship and there's suffering. And that's what we endure this side of heaven. But there's also a blessing that we receive that transcends the tribulation. Our Father is well-pleased by his children when we obey him by speaking the truth, the only truth in the wilderness that he has conquered and is conquering through his Son and through his church. Thus, we can be prophetic as we proclaim truth and prepare people for the Lord. We can proclaim truth and prepare people for the Lord. Second and lastly, we are obligated to understand the comprehensive nature of the gospel. This is what I want us to, to go away understanding, church, this morning. In one sense, the gospel is narrow. The narrow nature of the gospel, which is true, is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel. That's the gospel in many ways in a nutshell. That is the, the gateway to the narrow road that is the gospel. It's undeniably, unequivocally true. In fact, if you don't know Jesus, this undeniable, unequivocal truth is the most important thing for you. It's the most important thing you ought to take away from Scripture. It's the most important thing that you ought to take away from any explanation of the gospel, that we are sinners because of everything that we've done wrong in our life. And while we've offended people, we've offended a holy and righteous God that much more. We can't get ourselves out of this dilemma, as we talked about this morning, in the catechism, a gracious God provided a way out of this judicial death sentence in the one who is truly God and truly man, and his blood was poured out in place of all those who believe. Old or young, rich or poor, good or bad, turning away from sin and embracing Jesus Christ, church, is the only way to be saved, the only way to find peace with God. And that's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called good news. Again, Church language sometimes obfuscates what's underneath it. 
It's the gospel because it's good news. Anything outside of this gospel is bad news. And the situation that we have without it is bad news. But what a blessing this truth is. This simplicity of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But in another sense, as we just scratched the the surface of as we went through this text quickly, salvation opens the door to an awareness of the pervasive width and breadth and depth of the nature of the gospel. The gospel reaches back into the Old Testament to the time of the prophets and to the law and to Genesis 3. The gospel includes all those things. Spatially, the gospel stretches from the banks of the Jordan River to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is about salvation, but it's also about a kingdom that those who are saved are actively participating in, a kingdom that's not of this world, a kingdom with an economy that plays by different rules, a kingdom that elevates different virtues, and a kingdom that adores a different sovereign king than the ruler of this age. These things, our prophetic role, and our message of the gospel are what we should teach diligently to our sons and speak of when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and we rise up. This is what we're introduced to. This is who we're introduced to in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Mark. By God's grace, the God of this universe and the God of salvation is the one that we are introduced to and the one that we are talking about and the one we're told to talk about. And so church, as we transition over to the supper, he's the one that we talk about. He is the one that we talk about through pictures and we talk about through symbols and we talk about through what we taste and we smell as we take the supper. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes as we take these elements. So in a moment, John's going to come up and lead us in a song as usual, and you are, as usual, called up to receive the elements. My encouragement to you is that you will take this time, that what we kind of started at our confession of having humble hearts, of what was kind of reinforced as we look to God's word and see this picture of humility in John the Baptist and this perfect picture of humility of Christ who submitted himself to a human institution for, of baptism, that we will humbly come and receive these elements. And that in our hearts, whether it be on our way up, whether it be on our way back to our seats, whether it be as we hold those things in our hands, that we will realize that this is Christ's table, that we only come here because of what he has done and that through it, he ministers to us in a new and fresh and exciting way, week in and week out, whenever we gather and receive it. So I'll pray and ask John to come up, and then we'll come up and receive the elements. Lord, I thank you for your supper. We thank you that we have, at this era, at this eon, at this epoch, a time to take the supper, looking back on the accomplished work of your son on the cross. I thank you that where we are from our vantage point, that we're able to pick these things up and not like the Israelites who would enjoy the Passover, wondering what salvation and deliverance would be, but we get to look back and see the blessing of the salvation and deliverance that was accomplished through the perfect spotless lamb of your son. 
We thank you that we get to know him and more as we study your word, especially the Gospels. And so, Lord, minister to us as we begin this study, as we go forth proclaiming your word, go forth proclaiming your kingdom, knowing that you have commanded us to do this and that you have given us your authority as we obey and share the good news of your kingdom. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.